This episode of See Here is not being brought to you by Tim. It's being brought to you by Cupid. We love you, Tim and Maria. Welcome to episode 90 of the See Here podcast, proudly presented by the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Morris. This podcast is all about talking about music-related films. We've been doing this for now nearly eight years. On the line, I have one of my regular compadres, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Uh, good, uh, oh, good evening, I suppose, for me anyway. I don't mean regular as in you're only regular. I mean, you're extra special. He has enough fibre in his diet. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you, Mike. I am very regular. I look after uh, myself in that respect. Thank you. You have good bowel digestion. This is excellent. And as you might have heard just there, also on the line, we have, well, not regular enough, at least not regular enough on this show. I don't know about your fibrous intake. Host of the Projection Booth podcast, Mr. Mike White. I drink a lot of coffee. Is that loaded with bran? Well, it, it's a duty redic. Anyway, welcome to the show, Mike. We're here to talk about an English film from 1980 called Breaking Glass. We're going to go to a break, play the trailer, and then we'll be back to talk about British New Wave and Breaking Glass. You're listening to See Here. <laughs> And the new wave crashes, and the glass shatters. In the beginning with the she will pick up the pieces and make them hers. Beginning in the dingy back streets of London, Kate and Danny are trying to get a band together. One, two, three, four. And finding trouble everywhere. Beware. Trouble with the law. Trouble in the clubs. I am the darkness and you are the light. And the growing violence which is London in the 80s. You're the white. Yeah. Give me an inch and I'll take me a mile. Give me the distance when you're supercilious. Give me an inch and I'll take me a mile. Soon she knows she's going to hit the big time. She's picked up, plugged and pushed around by the promoters and still managing to stay defiant she's half in love with Danny half wishing it had never started and she's finding that the big time is a pretty empty place. Phil Daniels and John Finch star in Breaking Glass. Introducing Hazel O'Connor as Kate. Featuring Hazel's own words and music. 
her face, her voice, her time is now. Breaking glass, the experience is shattering. back from break morris over here bernie over there mike somewhere else over there we're here to talk about the film breaking glass came out in 1980 directed by brian gibson and it occurred to me that we've actually gone and discussed another of his films on this podcast still crazy i think that was maybe your pick wasn't it bernie uh, no I, I think tim might have picked that one that was a couple of years ago now we, we covered that but it kind of makes sense it was him that directed that as well because um the limited amount of research i did for this i think he actually had some experience in the industry didn't he and well yes he'd gone and made a bunch of video clips for sticks yeah the famous mr roboto cycle with all that that, that whole kilroy was here thing that was fantastic i am the modern man behind the mask secret, secret, I've got a secret So no one else can see Secret, secret, I've got a secret My true identity He also directed What's Love Got To Do With It? Breaking Glass is also written by Brian Gibson and stars Hazel O'Connor. I've got to confess, actually, quite a number of people who I recognise from this. So Hazel O'Connor, Phil Daniels, who, being a lifelong fan of Quadrophenia, he uh, was in that, and was also the voice on Blur's Park Life. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as... A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as... Jonathan Price, Brazil, amongst many other things, although completely unrecognisable to me. Mark Wing Davy, who I recognise from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Zaphod yes, Beeblebrox. Yeah, yeah. And Jim Broadbent, who's been in everything, but he was also in Brazil, Time Bandits, which we discussed a few months back on the, the projection booth, Mike. And one of the auditioning drummers, I did not pick this up until I saw this on IMDb, was Rat Scabies of the Damned. He was actually he was actually auditioning to play the guitar, wasn't he? He, oh, you know, he is right. a drummer, yeah. That, yeah. Okay, now that makes sense because the, until I slowed it down, I at first thought that that was James Honeyman Scott from The Pretenders. And I thought, oh, no, it's not quite. Who is it? Who is it? And now that makes... Oh, there you go, yeah. There you go. It makes complete sense. Yeah, you're right. Rat Scabies. <laughs> he was very, very funny. i just point out a few uh, other people in this. One of the great joys I find of British films from this period it's just recognising all these character actors that you grew up with watching them in films and on TV and continue to do so till this day so you've got Mark Wingett who plays I think he's Tony the bass player he was in a long running British TV show called The Bill by policing you've got John Finch he was uh, Jerry Cornelius in the uh, final programme back in the uh, 70s with the great Michael Moorcock adaptation Gary Tibbs who was actually a member of Adam and the Ants that's Uh, right 
right. Yes, yes. He shows up as I think he's Dave, the guitar player. Isn't That's he? right. Yes, he is. Yes. You got uh, Derek Thompson, who uh, another long-running TV guy over here, has been in a show called Casualty for about thirty years. Richard Griffith shows up in it as well. Uncle Monty from Withnow and I, he's in it briefly. Yeah, there's probably a few others as well, but those are the ones that were really leapt out at me as I was going through it. You know what? I was going to say though, I'm sure that a good friend Scott Phipps over at Real Britannia would probably be able to tell you every single person in that film mm-hmm. about 10,000 shows <laughs> that they're associated with. Uh, so the IMDb plot is a rock singer is determined to rise to the top of the profession, letting nothing stand in the way of that goal. Now, we've seen some pretty horrible descriptions on IMD, but, but that one <laughs> that one is probably just about the worst. And we've seen some terrible ones. All right, so we'll fill you in with details as we go along, people, and just tell you why that description is so inadequate. Now, Mike, you selected this film for us because it was one you had long meant to watch but hadn't got around to. Was it worth the wait? What are your initial impressions of Breaking Glass? Yeah, I think it was worth the wait. I love movies like this. And I had read about this years ago. I used to run a zine, Cashiers to Cinemart. And one of the guys that wrote for me all the time, Chris Cummins, wrote about this movie. And he particularly was fascinated by the last musical number and the outfit that she was wearing and just how much this movie must have influenced Tron. Because that outfit that she's wearing, it's like, wow, she looks like she is right out of the video game, about to uh, jump into a tank or a, a light cycle and start bashing into other non-players kind of thing. But yeah, I really like this. I was very surprised I hadn't seen this before. It feels like it would be a really good double feature with something like Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, mm-hmm. because of that whole idea of both female rockers, but then also just that decline and fall, well, I should say the rise and fall of these bands and groups and just how the pressures just drive people apart and really ruin them. And I would say that this one's even more bleak than, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. And I have to say, man, Hazel O'Connor, she is fantastic. And she was so great to watch. I was really thrilled with her and her vocals. And I can say that if you don't like her vocals after the first five minutes, just stop watching the movie because she sings through like 95% of this film. come back to that point that you make about the rise and fall. Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is a great comparison, but I've got a few others in mind because I think that rise and fall films are a subgenre of rock and roll films. Bernie, your initial thoughts about the film? Had you seen this before? No, do you know I hadn't? It's This was the first time viewing for me as well. I'd always been aware of it though. I remember when it came out, I was 10 in 1980, and that was probably the, the height of my obsession with pop music and the charts. So I have very vivid memories of uh, Hazel O'Connor. She was fairly ubiquitous at the time, actually. Um, Will You is the uh, the big, or one of the big numbers in this. That was a massive hit over here. And the song that she sings at the end with the sort of Tron outfit, Eighth Day, that was a very big hit as well. And it's funny, in my head, I always used to think the Nick Lowe song Breaking Glass was something to do with this, but obviously not at all. I love the sound of Breaking Glass 
but it's got to be around the same sort of period that must have been 79 80 so but yeah as i said i really enjoy films like this in the sense that for me they are absolute time machines in a way because it takes me back to a period where i can remember it actually very well and as i was saying you know seeing certain actors just the look and the feel of things, even down to the sort of the graininess of the film that was kind of used during that period and how that actually made London and the UK look. So I, I very much enjoyed that about it. I, I will say I'm going to have to disagree with you here, Mike. I don't think the songs have aged that well. Some of them are fine, but others not so much. And I do find her vocals, they're very theatrical and they're very, what's the word? Mannered? Not mannered. Sure. It will come to me in a moment. It it won't be worth the wait anyway. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I I found it a little bit, some of her vocalising is a little bit hard going. And uh, she is good. She's definitely got a charisma and a presence. But I think there are a few points in the film where her acting isn't quite up to some of the other actors. And it kind of shows a little bit. But I don't think that particularly detracts from the film. And as, as you said as well, Mike, it's definitely got a certain amount of grit and... I suspect realism to it, which gives it a, a, a bit of an edge as well. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what to expect going in, but I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. The name's Tony O'Brien. The ad says auditions nine to six. I thought I'd get here early, show you what I can do with my base. Says this address in the paper, brought it with me. See? Well, I've got my base with me. I've got somewhere I could plug it in, maybe. Ah. What sort of stuff do you do then? Uh, I like the rifty kind of stuff myself. And uh, heavy metal. Remember the film being available at the VHS library back in the 80s, but I mean, I never counted myself as a Hazel O'Connor fan, like of her music, so it was something I guess I just bypassed over. I remember the early 80s or maybe like, no, probably more the late 70s, Lena Lovitch being really, really big, and the vocals from Hazel O'Connor reminded me a little bit like that. It was that robotic sound, and I, I am going to use the word mannered. I've actually thought of the word I was trying to conjure up is uh, affected. There's a lot of affectation to her oh, vocals. Okay. I went and listened to a little bit of her music from a later period, because, I mean, she's mm-hmm. famous for Breaking Glass, and, you know, she had about two or three albums, I think, at that time in the early 80s. But like a lot of artists who were known for one thing, she kept recording, and I think she's still recording to this day. So I've listened to, you know, not much, but just a little bit of a latter-day stuff, and that affectation, as you call it, Bernie, I think has gone to the wayside. I think she's singing a, a little more naturally. Yeah, yeah, I suspect that's probably the case at this point, yeah. But it was the early 80s, and it was just the thing to do, and it was probably praised at the time. She was similar in a way, I don't know how big Toya Wilcox was uh, in Australia or over in the States. But I I think you could certainly make some comparisons in kind of looks and vocal styles and so forth. It's great that you make the comparison with her and Toya because you know that Hazel beat Toya for the role. Oh, of course. In Breaking Glass. That makes absolute sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So I had never seen this film and like you guys, I found it really, really enjoyable. I knew within the first five minutes, this was going to be as you said, Mike, a rise and fall film. I can only think of maybe one or two films 
that are about a band that are not a rise and fall film. But, you know, from the moment where Phil Daniels sees Hazel O'Connor putting up posters for her gig in an alleyway that he's going to try and produce her and things are going to go great until they don't. All right, now. Looks good, that. It's all right, isn't it? Trouble is you get all these little lumps. It's made the nose go so wobbly. What sort of stuff do you do, punk? I'm not punk. What, um, new wave, then? Not a new wave. It's inspired by punk. Oh, I see, but it's better, is it? Yeah. Well, go on in. Tell us some of your lyrics. Oh, you'll have to come and see a gig. Oh, I don't think I'll be able to. Come on, I'm a person who knows a lot of bands, gets about a bit. I could give you an end. Really? Yeah. Go on, sing us a song. In the street? Well, I thought singers were meant to be all run shy and let it out. I'd sing in the street. I'll talk really loud. Sing us a song! Oh, I don't mind. I'll give you a bit of a song. I'll dedicate it to you. But for all of that, I don't have a problem with that sort of film. I don't have a problem with the predictability of it. You of all people, Mike, will know that we don't watch Columbo because we want to see will he or won't he figure it out. We know he's going to figure it out. It's the journey along the way. But there are other films like The Commitments or A Face in the Crowd where they start in humble situations and it all turns to shit. And this is just another one of those sorts of films. Although if you had watched the American cut of the film, which I want to talk about later when we get to the ending, you might not know that it was a rise and fall. You might have thought it was a rise, slight dip, and then a triumph. But the American and British ending of the film are different. I just wanted to ask you both about what your connection was to the music of the time. I've gone and said this a lot about what was called the British New Wave. It never made sense to me about classifying this music as New Wave and that music as New Wave because Susie and the Banshees is way different from madness is way different from the police but they all got lumbered under this new wave thing so what were you listening to at the time did any of those british bands was that your thing i'll start with you mike because it's maybe not as obvious whether they were or not um yeah i was very into music for a long time as a kid but i was listening to more classical stuff when i was growing up my mom had me playing piano so i was listening to a lot of classical music a lot of 50s stuff but even with that new wave kind of broke through so the police being on the radio madness having a lot of music videos and i was really drawn to that stuff so i wouldn't say that i was a major fan of any of that at the time like i i didn't own any of the albums or anything it wasn't until probably 85 86 that i started really collecting music and buying albums and those things so back when i was i think bernie you're like two years older than i am and my record collection was pretty paltry just like some uh, novelty records and weird al kind mm-hmm. of stuff <laughs> in the old days uh bob and doug mckenzie those kind of things but yeah it definitely broke through and i enjoyed what i heard and yeah to your point the distinction between punk and new wave punk as an umbrella it was huge as well it's like looking at the clash versus the jam versus the sex pistols it's like so different with stuff mm-hmm. and then yeah what makes this new wave versus something else it's like now saying alternative you know it's like what what are your criteria yeah. yes stuff so it's like madness you can say well they're kind of more of like a ska band sometimes and the police they had their thing going on i mean i mean just looking at the roster of irs artists it's just like wow klaus nomi and the cramps okay Okay. <laughs> I just finished reading a biography of the Cramps and they hated being referred
referred to as punk or new wave or anything. They just said, no, we're rock and roll. That's it. Purely rock and roll with a bit of theater. Yeah. I mean, I've heard so many terms lobbied around for them as far as like psychobilly, rockabilly. It's mm. just like, yeah, what the hell are they? I don't know. I just like them. The best way to describe them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Bernie, were you buying Duran Duran records as a kid? I was. Absolutely. As I said, this is kind of the period where I was very much into what at the time over here was chart music. This was pop music. I find it really interesting that the sort of talk of new wave, because I think that was a term that wasn't actually used here in the UK very much. It seems to be almost a term for almost like a British invasion-y type bands, that second or third wave at this point, I suppose, when bands like The Police or Madness or whoever started being noticed in other countries. I mean, at the time over here, this was just chart music. And it seems to me that obviously that's it's post-punk, but it was still pop music. We had a national chart over here so there wasn't sort of like regional charts and there wasn't you know like an r&b chart or country chart we just had one top 100 as it were and every week it would start at four o'clock and go through till six o'clock on a sunday afternoon they would play on radio one which was kind of like the again the premier national radio station over here they would do the countdown of the top 40 records and i would sit there every week with my uh, little tape recorder cassette recorder and record from the radio all the songs that i liked so yeah i, I was kind of obsessed with all this stuff at this age i didn't have a, a record player at that time i had like a little portable cassette player and i remember buying cassettes by madness and duran duran soft cell i remember oh. Oh, Lord. But I have vivid memories of being with my mum in uh, Woolworths. And my birthday was coming up and she said, oh, you can have one cassette for your birthday. What would you like? And I said, oh, I want the Soft Cell album. And so we go over to the counter and I point it out and it's called Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> bear in mind, I'm like nine years old at the time or whatever. And I, so my mum was buying it for me. And I said, mum, what does erotic mean? <laughs> She said, I don't know. I don't know. Here's your tape. Shut up. Yeah, I, I was absolutely obsessed with this stuff at this uh, this time. There was also as well, I, sh- I should mention that I was an avid reader of Smash Hits, which was the uh, weekly pop magazine, which I guess would have uh, certainly wouldn't been, you can compare it to Cream or anything like that. I guess it's probably closer to Tiger Beat or something. But it was, yeah, you know, full of interviews with pop stars of the day, song lyrics. Uh, and of course, it was edited by uh, Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys. But yeah, I was absolutely a uh, a 10-year-old pop fan. I was absolutely obsessed with it. It says a lot, really. It was always tough for certain acts to break through for radio play. It was a lot easier to break through for MTV play because they were so desperate for videos to play. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first video I remember seeing on MTV was Flock of Seagulls. And good luck hearing that on the radio, but you would hear it or see it on MTV. That's where I was first exposed to madness, first exposed to the police so it was a lot easier that way but yeah when it came to ratings I was very very tough so I don't know if it was easier to break through on like a BBC One type of thing or BBC Radio what I'm leading to is I was a big fan of when I finally knew who John Peel was it's like oh this guy played sure is the DJ in this is he kind of John Peelish unemployment figures published yesterday jumped one more time by half a percent bringing the overall total to the highest since the war and this is one more time by Susan Sattler. Welcome, change of mood. 
climbing to number 31 in the top 60. Um, no. Okay. No, not in the slightest. John Peel was always the champion of the lesser known, more underground kind of stuff. So the kind of new wavy stuff that we're talking about now would have been way too commercial for uh, John Peel. It, it's, oh. it's funny. He was uh, it was an interesting situation or it was an interesting situation because he had been with Radio 1 right from the beginning. And yet during this period, the sort of 70s into the 80s, he was sort of relegated to a late night slot. And Radio 1 for the rest of the day would be playing pop music, stuff that was in the charts. And he had this little sort of two hour slot every night where he'd be playing records by The Fall or... Uh, Misty and Roots or, uh, you know, all these other obscure bands from the 70s and 80s. So what he was doing was kind of a world away compared to uh, your sort of your average radio DJ on, on Radio 1 at the time. And it's interesting as well, you, you were saying in, in the States it was difficult for this stuff to break on radio. Over here, we only really had radio and it was all under the one banner of the BBC, who owned the BBC TV channels as well. So you would have Top of the Pops on television every week, which was uh, effectively a sort of distilled version of the Top 40 countdown, where you would actually see some of the bands playing live. But, I mean, we didn't have MTV either. That's the other big thing. We didn't get MTV in this country till probably 86, 87, 88. So even though it was huge and a lot of these acts were breaking via MTV in the States, uh, it was all radio over here. It was all radio and a tiny bit of TV. Our equivalent of your Top of the Pops was a show called Countdown, shown on the mm-hmm. ABC. That was definitely the, by far the most popular of the uh, TV pop shows. But really, for those of us that wanted something a little bit more adventurous, there were the late night music shows, which were catering to people in their 20s. You know, once you sort of, you didn't need the top 40 anymore. We had a show called Night Moves and another really excellent show called Rock Arena, which was on the ABC. I don't think that started though until maybe the mid 80s, but Night Moves was around like from the mid 70s. Night Moves was probably similar to your old grey whistle test, Bernie. Yeah, yeah. I was going to bring that up as well. Certainly during that period, That was aimed more at people who were, uh, I guess, fans of music from the late 60s and early 70s. So it took uh, punk a while to catch on with the old grey whistle test. There's that infamous uh, clip of the New York Dolls playing and then whispering Bob Harris comes on afterwards and says, oh, yes, there we go. Some mock rock for you. Mock rock. (laughs) The New York Dolls. He was not a fan of them at all. He was very uh, derisive of them. He's a funny character. I'd like to see a documentary on whispering Bob Harris, I think. I think he still around. BBC are very good with their music programmes and documentaries and they have uh, on BBC 4 on Friday nights they have a sort of music strand there where they'll show a few things and a couple of weeks ago they did a big celebration of Whistle Test. They showed a lot of the old stuff and how it changed as it went into the 80s. So you've got plenty of Bob Harris on there as well and Bob Harris today talking about how it was back then so um, mm. yeah interesting stuff definitely but I, I was too young for that at the time it was all it was all Duran Duran and uh, Visage for me one final point I want to talk about with the music over there I know we're saying that all these bands coming under this banner of New Wave and what does it really mean and yet of course there were the other acts of the day British acts of the day that would never have come under that banner so you know I think the same year that Breaking Glass is released Discovery by Electric Light Orchestra is released and mm-hmm. that 
that was never going to come under that banner. And uh, you mentioned Nick Lowe before. I mean, Nick Lowe was heading more, more and more towards country sounds. He certainly would have been uh, described as new wave at the time, though. I, I think it is, it's a casual term for sort of post-punk pop, isn't it, I suppose? Right. Once again, I struggle to sort of think of something like Cruel to be Kind or Switchboard Susan to be under the new wave banner. But once again, I, I don't know how anything came under that new wave banner. I think Mike nailed it when he said that new wave was a, a very similar to the term alternative, which basically means... right kind of not mainstream i guess i do want to come to the point mike you were asking about the radio and saying was that the equivalent of john peel and bernie says it's not but there was something i was thinking about the radio since this is a really good setup for talking about the political environment of england at the time so this came out in 1980 which was when thatcher had come into power you get these aerial shots it was like they had three scenes where we hear the radio announcer and we get this aerial shot of the sort of london sky skyline isn't it yeah, L- yeah. L- london skyline as it goes over the housing commission flat so the poorer yeah, yeah. area of london and on the soundtrack we're hearing that radio announcer telling us that the unemployment figures are the highest since world war Two. rubbish piling up in the streets rubbish piling yeah. up in the streets and now let's listen to a disco track and so <laughs> that's the music that new wave is supposed to supplant maybe they wanted to make a point about the excess of disco which was something that the punks and the new wave pop fans were never going to get into i mean you hear the disco music and first thing i think of is wow studio 54 hedonism cocaine snorting and it's the antithesis of what's going on here this is sort of maybe like ken loach territory i don't think it's so much that i I think it's the fact that that kind of cheap disco pop tune is just complete ephemera and not at all indicative of what's going on in real life but surely by that time when the time that this film was being made i mean we'd already had bands like you know Susie and the banshees and yeah but not getting in the charts and not really getting much of you know listen outside of people who are in the know okay so none of that stuff was being played on any of the bbc stations well, you know, John Peel would have been playing some of it and it probably would have been played uh, here and there, definitely. But I think that's the point they're trying to get across. No, sure. On the one hand, I think it was maybe like in uh, the second of those three scenes where we're hearing the radio announcer and the disco music in the background, he never says Thatcher by name, but he does say the Prime Minister <laughs> is going to fight the anarchists for control. <laughs> the economic yeah. news is reporting that record company profits are down at an only disco music music is holding steady (laughs) and i thought really yeah i don't think that was actually the case maybe in 1977 or 76 it might have been the case but it was great for we have a point to say in the film we're going to go with it but i thought 1980 already some of these bands were probably selling in big numbers but anyway and by the time they get to the third lot of the radio announcer sort of saying this is what's going on in england at the moment and here's the new single by breaking glass by the time they got to the second lot of the radio announcer i could sort of say oh yeah i bet they go another time and it once again it's all in threes you see the use of the radio announcer it was a good use of exposition that really helps set the stage for just what this england 
England is like. I mean, I, I can't imagine an England where there are, are racists and Nazi sympathizers and poverty. I mean, that's just not the real England, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, it, it was then and it's even more so now. It's, uh, <laughs> what this film actually captures quite well is that period of the 70s turning into the 80s. Even though I was too young to really understand what was going on politically and, and so forth, it just felt very grey and dull and dark and oppressive. I, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's kind of difficult to explain. The, the distinct feel to that time period, to uh, us old farts that lived through it. I guess that's another thing that about films from this period, they, they kind of reflect that even if they're not trying to necessarily. I like the fact how this film is really two types of film in the one. The more overt one is the rise and fall of this band, or and particularly the Hazel O'Connor character as the lead singer. And once again, that's in the British release of the film, the American one, which we'll come to. It cuts the ending short. But it's also got this political subtext, which unlike watching a Ken Loach film, it's not banging you on the head with it. Maybe it's because it was made in 1980, maybe by 1983, 1984, it might have been a lot more overt but I like the fact that it's there it's hinted at and probably the people watching this in England would have gotten it maybe three four years down the track if it had been made then everyone else would have gotten it yeah I mean certainly that you know rock against racism and uh, that whole thing and that whole vibe was quite prevalent amongst uh sort of younger more turned on people at the time so mm. it makes sense that they uh, at least allude to it in this but actually it sort of plays a fairly key point isn't it it's a bit of a turning point really I wanted to just sort of talk for a couple of minutes about Hazel O'Connor herself I read a couple of interviews with her and I heard her on a very recent podcast I think she's been in France over the uh, course of the pandemic that was speaking to her from there I don't think she's terribly unhappy being stuck in a small French village over uh, the course of the pandemic it's probably very scenic but it was interesting something that she said her words she said in hindsight she says that she was the perfect victim like leading up to the period of making this film and just after the making of the film she'd been assaulted in her teens and she blamed it on herself she said that she was cheated badly by the deals involving getting no royalties for the making of the music and the making of the film and she said and I'm quoting here she said the money I never got I didn't think I earned it anyway I was so happy that someone wanted me and signed me in those days but of course I had no money to pay the rent and the irony about all this is she's making this film which is like a cautionary tale in a way to musicians it's basically you know like a lot of films the music industry is this overarching capitalist enterprise it's evil it's bad don't get sucked into it and yet the soundtrack of this film was her first album i don't think it was the first thing that she involved in as far as film goes but it was her first big film 
And once again, after this, everything that happens to Kate, well, I mean, apart from what happens at the very end, is what happens to her. She's cheated really, really badly. And she had to go through the courts many years later to get any royalties for her early music, Breaking Glass and the albums that came afterwards. I think the moral of that comes out of this film and to her own life is something that we discussed a couple of years ago. Mike, you were speaking about Oz, a rock and roll road movie, where the moral of the film, as Dorothy says in that, is fame and fortune will fuck you up. And even though Hazel never explicitly says this, that is the impression that we come away from this. Just to hear that low self-opinion, and because she carries this entire film. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and her vocals, like I said, she is just a force of nature when it comes to what she's doing there. Yeah, I agree with you, Bernie, that she is affected, that there is that theatricality <laughs> to everything. But I think yeah. that's really such a part of the character and part of what makes yeah. this special. Yeah, no, I can see that. It's just... Uh, a personal thing and it's you know something that's going to work for me isn't necessarily going to work for for you or, or vice versa bernie were you ever a fan of or maybe you were too young i don't know but did you ever watch not the nine o'clock news Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. I can't be 100%, but I like to think that Pamela Stevenson might have done a parody of Hazel O'Connor, or I know certainly she did one of Kate Bush. But that sort of vocal style seemed like the sort of thing that Pamela Stevenson would have taken the piss out of. It's entirely possible, yeah, yeah. I don't remember one uh, off the top of my head. Did you ever get to see Not the Nine O'Clock News over there, Mike? Yeah, it, it wasn't playing generally, but I know um, I've run across it. And I mean, just that cast, is it was amazing. I think that was probably the first time I saw it. That was Rowan Atkinson was in that as well, right? That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, everybody in there just always knocked it out of the park. And then I want to say... I, I just blanked down the woman's name, Pamela. Pamela Stevenson. I want to say she was even on SNL for a season, and they had no idea what to do with her. She's married to Billy Connolly, isn't she? And I believe that they both lived in the States for quite a while, so that would make sense that she was uh, doing stuff over there. Remember when was the last time you were here? 1967? 1969. <laughs> I miss wearing my captain. There's a couple of moments in the film where, especially at the end, I guess, where she's on stage with a band, and it all just look they're far away from their roots in terms of just being a punk band playing out. And I think, Mike, you were saying that it looked like Tron. And the only thing I could think of, Bernie, we spoke about this when we were talking to um, Alan Arkush, was I thought of the uh, Gary Newman moment in Ur- <laughs> Urga Music War. And oh, yeah. <laughs> in his little future car that I just I just have to think of that and it makes me laugh. That is tremendous. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a, and the thing is, it was taken seriously at the time, and yeah. you know, it, it was the sort of thing that this spinal tap was taking the piss out of. <laughs> I guess it's just lucky that they didn't decide to have Kate drive onto stage in a little <laughs> sort of Tron buggy and then get out and start singing. <laughs> As to the film, we've spoken a bit about already that, you know, this is a rise and fall film and the two central characters are Kate, played by Hazel O'Connor, and her manager, Danny, uh, played by Phil Daniels, who he seems to be like a... Uh, you know that guy who, who's basically just 
after any opportunity that he can. The upper class versus those who are hungry. I think the first time we see Danny, he's trying to get into a, a, an industry party that's held, I think, at the back of the Rainbow Theatre. The film sort of concentrates on all the usual tropes, you know, drugs, jealousy, outside interference, idealism of rock and roll versus selling out evil record companies. And so in those ways, their relationship and the film is predictable, but it is so charismatic and it's well done that I don't mind being told that story again. I'd be interested to know like, if Shane Meadows or, or Stephen Frears had made this film, how it would look any differently. I like watching films or thinking about films that were made at this time that do serve as metaphors of Thatcher's England. A very different film in a way, but it covers maybe some similar ground thematically would be The Long Good Friday. You've got Bob Hoskins there who's trying to rule his patch in the New England. I mean, this film, uh, Breaking Glass, is about the musicians trying to find their place in New England, sweeping the old world away of of uh, prog rock and the dinosaur bands like the Rolling Stones and the like. This is their time. And in The Long Good Friday, it's you know Bob Hoskins. He says, right, we're going to do things differently, but he has to end up doing things the old way. Are there any other films that you gents can think of like from England at that time that were doing a similar sort of thing? You know, trying to make a like a, a, a statement without it being overtly about politics or about Tory policy or anything like that, but was set at the time just people trying to find their way. A lot of film from the UK from that period couldn't help but be about that. I think that a film that we covered a long time ago, you could put in a that sort of similar-ish bracket, and again, I think would make a good double with this, um, is Babylon. Yes, the, uh, yes. The reggae sound system. That's a tremendous film. And if anything, that's even darker and grittier than this. And it's uh, sort of, uh, I guess, you know, the sort of flip side of the coin, really. But yeah, certainly that one sort of springs to mind. I don't know, uh, nothing else specific. But like I was saying earlier, it's almost just the tone of stuff from this period in the UK. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting period filmically. I suppose even something, I know it's a few years later and it's dealing with something from a different period, but even something like With Now and I has yeah, got that kind of, I don't know, intangible quality that movies, British movies from this period kind of did. So I don't know, maybe that one's a bit of a stretch. When we talked about With Neil and, Ale, uh, and I on uh, the projection booth, yeah, we were totally mm-hmm. talking about Thatcher's England and yeah, yeah. I mean, that whole thing of the end of this era. I mean, I know it was really talking about the end of the 60s but it really felt so much like now it is this time period and just like the whole thing of them being on the dole and the idea that makes students and all this kind of stuff i i I completely agree with that well this is not a movie this is more of a tv show but i think certainly a product of its era a favorite show of us all the young ones oh Um, yeah oh sure yeah yeah there's a scene in breaking glass where they've left the pub they're taking their instruments out and you've got these assholes from the national front who are beating the stuffing out of each other having a fight outside the pub and Hazel O'Connor is you know yelling at them fascist fascist and <laughs> all I could think of was Rick Mail Rick <laughs> <laughs> what do you think you're doing pig yeah she seems like the kind of person that would write a poem in protest of that yeah. <laughs> I think going back to what you were saying Morris about the uh, the, the kind of details of the uh, sort of the industry almost the time that it that this shows 
I thought it was a really nice touch that Danny, the uh, Phil Daniels character, has this. He's obviously doing this slightly dodgy job for this guy who works for the record company by going out and buying, you know, hundreds of singles. So he can actually, you know, he's fixing the charts, basically, which was something that apparently did go on at the time quite regularly. Hi there. What do you want? I bought you a Christmas present. I forgot to bring it to you last year. Here, Susie Sapphire. Leave it out, will you? I was thinking of coming up with a couple of friends of mine from the music press because they're really sort of interested in your promotional techniques. There's a couple of scenes where he's just tossing this, you know, multiple copies of the same single at this guy because he's had to go out and buy like, you know, 200 copies so it can uh, get into the top 10 or whatever. I thought that was a really nice little detail that uh, they didn't sort of overplay it either. Little things like that. This has got a number of little things like that in it, which, you know, makes it feel a bit more genuine. I don't think that there's anything in this film aside from maybe a, a couple of the on-stage performances that are overplayed. It's, yeah, musically overplayed, but that's the point that they're trying to get across. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call the payola and throwing those uh, records on, on that guy's desk as overly subtle, but it is sort of, yeah, just more like a little detail. We're not going to harp on about it. And yes, it, yeah, is, yeah. it is those moments that I think really made this film special. There's another thing which I really like about the opening of the film. It used a device which could have, you know, sort of doubled as a video clip for whatever MTV, Top of the Pops. This device is something that they never come back to in the film. It sort of gave me the impression that this was going to be a musical in the traditional sense where the singer substitutes a song for dialogue. Yes, yeah. The opening moments of the film, Hazel O'Connor is walking around this train, putting posters up on the train, advertising a gig, and she's singing this song, Writing on the Wall. And it pretty much summarises what the whole story is about. I'm the new generation. Look out for us. Uh, You better pay attention to us because your old ways are going to be out the window. And she's singing this to the camera and in a way I sort of wish that they'd come back to that as a device later on in the film all the rest of the songs that she sings are performances in front of a pub or a concert hall or something like that so I thought it was a little bit unusual that they did that but I guess in a way I mean we never question it when non-musical film with the lead character will break the fourth wall and turn to the audience to say something just it's all over Annie Hall for instance and this is I guess just a case of Hazel kind of breaking the fourth wall and I want to give you some exposition. This is, I'm giving you the setup. Boom, here we go. We've done it right, good. All the rest of the songs are done in a concert type of scenario. But I like that they did that. I was just going to say, I'd actually forgotten about that. And it, it does seem strange that they should do that right at the start of the film and then just not go back to it at all. It's, it's an odd decision, but it does work, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it almost comes back at the end, like having her go back to the train. Right. But that it's not, you know, because the end on the train also feels like a little bit of a music video especially all of the mm-hmm. women that are dressed like her 
I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. But yeah, I was kind of hoping like that there'd be her then maybe coming back to that song and picking that up again. But yeah, I agree that opening was very strong. And I was like you, I was kind of hoping that this whole movie would be her singing to us, the audience. Yeah. If they do that, then it seems less of a breaking the fourth wall type of thing and more of a, hey, this is a traditional musical. And certainly by 1980, traditional musicals where the songs are substitutes for dialogue was definitely not at all fashionable. Okay, so in terms of the influence that this film had, this is just sort of like such a a minor point, but I reckon that Alan Parker and Roddy Doyle were paying attention to this because there's that humorous audition scene. And I thought, it's the commitments. Oh, yeah. I'm sure this is not the only film where we see bits and people auditioning for something, but the humor that they went through, we get a bassist who's not listening to Kate singing and is jumping around like a rock hero. We get not Jonathan Price yet. We get a a saxophonist who's probably had two lessons and is playing terribly. And you get this look on Kate's face like Jimmy Rabbit does in in The Commitments. You get the punk guitarist who thanks for confirming that that was Rat Scabies. He's hell bent on volume and he's pulling faces, destroying a land room. You get the two punk guitarists painted in with silver on their faces. Um, <laughs> you get the two opera singers before we finally get Jonathan Price, who shows that he can actually play. So he's the first musician who they bring in, but he's deaf. Selectively deaf. That's great. Amazing. Thank you. What? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'll give you a ring later on a day. What? I'll give you a ring later on today. This money you give us a ring, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So- <laughs> yes, yeah. When can he hear us? When can he not? Because he plays along with the music, like, fantastically. But as soon as the music's over, then it's like, what'd you say? But yeah, I, I like his character a lot. And I feel terrible when he ends up hooked on drugs. And I didn't pick until later on that that was Jonathan Price. I mean, did you see that straight away, Mike? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I it, Well, I saw his name in the credits. And so then I was looking for him. And then as soon as she showed up on screen, I was like, wow, he looks like a baby. I saw his name in the opening credits, but I spent the whole film. With him. Where was? Where was he? And the same, the same with um, the same with Mark Wing Davy. If he'd been uh, wearing like an eye patch and had a second head, maybe I would have recognised him. But uh, <laughs> to sort of go back to the credit, I think you were saying Bernie about that this would make a good double feature with something like Babylon. But Babylon's considerably darker. The thing about this film is, yeah, and it does go to some dark places. And yet, a lot about the first half of the film until there's a very distinct cutoff point, and we'll come to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the first half of the film is its good-natured. It's mates together trying to achieve something, isn't it? They're having an adventure. It's yeah. them against the world, as it were. There's some humour there. There's some, you know, optimism. There's hope that they're, uh, you know, they're going to do something on their terms and change things, and mm. particularly as far as Kate's concerned. So, yeah, that, it's definitely lighter in tone, you know, certainly up until the, the certain, uh, you know, the, the event, mm. which... Um, marks the beginning of the downfall. We still get a couple of those darker events before that main event, which we'll come to in a minute, but you can see that she's someone who has a lot of shit to put up with, you know, as a woman singing in front of a punk band. Uh, She's Mm -hmm. leaving the pub and she has to walk up the stairs to leave the venue and there's um, all these sleaze buckets who are trying to cotton on to her and, you know, she strongly pushes them away saying, you know, fuck off. All right, I'm your groupie. Let's Take go. Me under, if you like. I'm your Let's groupie. go, me. Oh, no, it's not. But then she goes home 
and she's got a for some reason she's got a drum kit in her apartment and she's sitting on the couch and she looks like she's got it together and then she kicks the drum kit over and it just bursts into tears you know this is really really affecting her i think that that's based on what i've read and what i heard her speak about in the interviews i think that that's a reflection of what she really had to put up with but yeah as you say up until an incident which uh, midway through the film it's where a band it's us against the world and it's there's a lot of positivity but there's a moment it's different in story but it made me think of the moment in boogie nights the 1979 going into 1980 new year's eve party the incident with william h macy where he sees his wife and shoots her and her lover and the film that's the midpoint where everything turns to shit so in this film the band are talked into playing a rally called was it rally against 1984 or something Mm-hmm. And they're playing on the back of a flatbed truck, you know, and you see all these other people there and they're all for the same cause. But coming from the other direction is the National Front. And like we'd already seen a few incidences which had the National Front just sort of getting into scraps at the gigs or beating each other up outside the gigs. But this bit was absolutely scary. I felt terrified actually watching that bit. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was maybe a slightly exaggerated for dramatic purposes kind of moment. But effectively, somebody in the audience sort of dies directly in front of her. It's a shocking moment for her. But it was well handled, that scene. It was certainly puts you in her shoes and uh, you feel the anguish and pain and shock. But at the same time, it did, to me, it did feel a little bit like this is a dramatic device that we can use so we can now start going in a different direction with this. And, you know, she can start going in a different direction as a character. You know, it did what it needed to do and it, it was a convincing way of doing it, definitely. She's screaming, she's terrified, and then there's that still shot of her face, I think, as it goes to a, a fade-out. She's absolutely terrified at that moment and she conveys that well beyond that. There's the usual sort of drug parties and things like that that we associate with bands in films where things are turning to shit and she's got the sycophants who want to tell her everything that she wants to hear. I think the one scene that sort of didn't work maybe was she goes to the radio station, there's talk back, and she's only had 10 of her 15 minutes of fame. Next question from David Wilkin. But the record companies choose what you do. It's them that control the material, not you. No, the record companies don't control my material. I control. I control what I sing. They try to, but I control me. And the next caller? Kate? Yes? You sold out, haven't you? And she's looking terrified and paranoid that her 15 minutes of fame are already up. I think that was maybe a little bit overplayed. But once again, it's part of that section of the film where they say, yeah, everything's got to go downhill. Probably the main issue I have with the film, and it's not a big issue at all, but it, it feels a little bit lopsided in that it spends a lot of time following the build up to this point. And it feels maybe a lot more sort of naturalistic during that part. Once this event happens, the descent begins. It almost feels like they skip over that stuff. It all seems to happen quite quickly and rapidly. You know, yeah. band members leave, um, egos become inflated. 
drugs become an issue, um, obviously mental health um, is becoming more and more fragile. Um, and it feels like they don't really give enough time for that to play out as convincingly as it could. No, I, I agree that the pacing of the film overall seems a little off. But yeah, especially mm-hmm. in that second half, it's just like, OK, when we see Jonathan Price in the back of the tour van and he's shooting up, I'm just like, well, which character? Yeah. Who is that back there? Yeah. And I'm, I, Where did that his, come from? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. His addiction seemed very, very sudden when he's like desperately searching for his fix and then seeing his his band members f around with him it's just like okay and it feels like maybe the john finch character could have been a little bit more machiavellian i mean i i, I appreciated him yes. especially his whole you know i've had what 15 years of wing chun <laughs> i studied wing chun for 15 years i'm a karate black belt what i'm saying to you is you leave don't give me that shit and then those two slime balls that were in the record company and that whole thing. I mean, as soon as she agreed, like, they don't really tell us that she agrees to change the lyrics to a song. And then later on, we hear the song and she's singing nose rather than ass. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, OK, I guess she changed it. Like, it should have been more of like a immediate cut. And then we hear the revised lyrics of it. I mean, maybe that happened. And I just wasn't paying enough attention. It just felt like mm-hmm. there should have been more of like okay, this was really a sellout moment and then we move on to there. I mean, when she first starts out, it doesn't feel like, to the point of the IMDb um, (laughs) capsule review, it really doesn't feel like she's going to do anything and everything to become a rock star. That doesn't feel like her raison d'etre. It just feels like she starts down this path and just follows the path and then as she comes to these different forks in the road, she keeps going down the wrong one. She doesn't stick to her integrity. She chooses the John Finch character even more mm-hmm. over than the, her manager slash lover. I mean, just all of these wrong decisions and then bad things that are happening just make it a worse a ride as she's going down that path. She seems to be seduced way too easily considering yes. how sort of idealistic she is during the first part of the film, I think. I completely agree. I'd be interested in knowing how much of that was just poor writing or concessions that they had to make. They said, right, this can only be a 90-minute film. Uh, you've got to cut this and this out. Yeah. I'd like to know if there was a script. Mike, you're the champion of finding original scripts. If you can find us this one, I'd love to read it in hindsight. <laughs> I'll have to take a look. While we've been talking about this, it only just occurred to me about another film that this could be a companion piece for, once again, because of The Rise and Fall. This is a sequel. Both of you guys, have you seen the film Stardust, which was a sequel to That'll Be The Day? I've seen That'll Be The Day, but I've never seen Stardust. Right. Okay, so back in the very early days of Love That Album, we did just a purely filmic episode, myself and Dr. Zom, talking about That'll Be The Day and Stardust. But I'd like to bring it back to 
see here. But basically, that'll be the day is more like a slice of life type thing about the David Essex character. But then the story goes into overdrive in the sequel, Stardust, where he goes just from being this guy who's ambitious and he really does want success at any cost and he's prepared to throw anyone under the bus that he can just to get to the top. He does get to the top. I won't go any further because I want you to see this. Mm -hmm. This film would be a good companion piece to Stardust. That'll be the day is more just, it could be a Bill Forsyth slice of life type film. Ringo's finest hour as well, isn't it? Uh, Ringo actually is, well, dang, don't, don't. No, I I mean it. He's surprisingly good in it, I think. I always thought Ringo was a pretty good actor, except for this one film that we watched for, well, I watched anyway for the... um, Oh God! I know the one you mean. <laughs> For the I know what you're going to say. The Harry Nelson doc, and uh, he, oh right, he made this film, Son of Dracula, with Harry, <laughs> with Harry Harry Nelson. Mike, if you haven't seen this, it's on YouTube. Oh no, I've seen it. Countdown. Well, it has been many moons since we've last seen each other. Now tell me of yourself. Was your journey pleasant? It had its moments. And your musical studies? Do they progress? I suppose so. Over the years, I've been into just about every conceivable type of music there is. You know. Tell me, Countdown, how are your music studies going? Oh, very well, thank you, Merlin. And uh, uh, that film probably had more cocaine on the set than <laughs> oh, any yeah. film in the history of cinema. But we digress. But yes, uh, uh, I'd recommend both of those. In fact, you know what? Sometime in 2022, we're going to do that as a double feature. I'm going to bring it back for see here. Really excellent slice of a British film. Well, certainly, that'll be the day I'll be interested how I feel about Stardust on a rewatch. It's a sequel, but they're two completely different films tonally. Let's talk about the film's end. I know we've been sort of like going all over the place, but that's okay. That's what this show does. So the film, as we've been saying here, the the second half, it jumps ahead way too quickly. But the gist is that the Hazel O'Connor character, Kate, has been seduced into this way of life. And um, she's become a big success, but at the cost of her own personal mental health. And as we get to the latter part of the film, she's tired, she's in pain, and she doesn't want to go on. She's uh, supposed to go on the stage at the Rainbow Theatre, and she just can't do it. She says to the record company executive, because Danny has long since said, fuck this shit, I've had enough, you're going down the wrong path. I can't look after you anymore. And he walks off the bus. So she's only got the record company exec to look after. And she's like, I'm not going on. They've got a doctor who just basically is like her Dr. Landy. who says, no, you're going to go on stage. Come back here. I'm going to inject you with the drugs that'll keep you up and going. Just a little prick. Yeah, I was totally reminded of of, uh, the wall right here. Yeah, yeah. So she goes on stage and she's hyper and she gets through that song, The Eighth Day. Now- Apparently, in the American version of the film, or the American cut of the film, she sings that song and that's where it ends, which completely is you know so wrong because that's basically saying, well, you can have a hard time, but ultimately she triumphs. They give her this injection in the... Uh, 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 uh. 
So is that seen in the American version as well? The injection, I don't know. Because like you say, that's sending a very strange message, isn't it? It is, but yeah. but the film ends at that point. I mean, probably the American distributor thought, hang on, we don't want to leave the audience with this message. Yeah, she's a little bit tired. Yeah, she's got these sycophants around her, but ultimately the music, she does it her way and the, the audience are wrapped and that's where it finishes. But that's not where the British version finishes. And as I think you've already sort of gone and described, Mike, she ends up, it's a great bookend. She ends up on the train and she's hallucinating and sees all these characters throughout the rest of the film. That's not where the film ends, but that's where she finally loses the plot. I wasn't sure whether or so much whether it was terrifying. Maybe they wanted it to be terrifying. I sort of got the impression it was more of a what the hell type of moment. It was certainly a far better ending than ending it with her concert triumph and the audience loving her because, as you say, Bernie, it's giving a completely wrong message. I guess this moment too is where I was thinking of the fabulous scenes, how all the girls were dressing like the Diane Lane character towards the end of the film. But with this mm-hmm. one, I don't think that people are dressing like her. I think they are all in her mind here at this point. Oh, yeah, I, I think it's essentially her having some kind of breakdown, isn't it? Some yeah. sort of episode, definitely. If I remember correctly, because it's been like nearly eight years since we watched The Fabulous Stains, but I seem to remember that yeah, thing, the, the band breaks up, thing, things go down, but five years later, she's in a successful MTV group. Things sort of work out okay for her, but you know, basically saying, if you want the commercial dream, you will have it. And I sort of felt like that was a cheating type of end. Whereas this film is like, no, success is an illusion. You're just a commodity. I did feel the ending of the the British version perhaps goes a little too far. I mean, she could be uh, difficult to talk about it without giving things away too much. Well, at this point, it's, yeah, it's 1980. If you haven't seen it by now, it's, you know, it's not our fault. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, she does. She winds up in a, um, it looks like some kind of, I don't know what the, the polite term the is sanatorium, now. A, sanatorium. Sanatorium. Yeah. yeah, she's kind of in this little uh, room and sat there and, and Danny comes in to see her. And she's practically comatose. She sort of tries to say a few words, but nothing comes out. And she just has this blank expression on her face. And it just seems a bit overdone i mean perhaps she could be in a sanitarium and just be recovering as opposed to sat there as a quivering wreck almost i felt they went just a little bit too far with that they could have pulled back a bit there it feels just like she's being punished a bit too much i see this as probably something that they were hinting at right from the beginning of the film the scene that i mentioned where she comes out of the gig with her band and she's tried to be felt up by one of the sleaze buckets at the gig and she goes home and she's been holding it in and kicks a drum kit over and she bursts into tears and then there's the bit with the national front where the band is playing and that guy gets murdered and she's petrified and here's the final straw she's just gone that bit over the edge i mean i, I agree it seems a little bit unnecessary but in hindsight it does seem like that's what they were going for all along i absolutely get that i just think they they take it a bit too far that's kind of almost like i don't know the the sort of shock device of of films from that period it would you know it's not like 
she can't just have had some sort of breakdown and be there recovering. She's yeah. literally just sat there comatose and it's like, oh my God, look what's happened to her. Whereas I don't think breakdowns or mental illness necessarily would have manifested that way in, in that situation. But you know, I'm, I'm making assumptions there. We're all different and we react differently to different things. It, it just felt like they could have done that without being quite so heavy handed with it. Certainly it was going to, it was building to that throughout the film. That was obvious, but I, I think they took her final uh, sort of mental state a, a little too far. You kind of feel like for 1980, we, you know, we'd have been a little bit past that, or filmmakers would have been a little bit past that. But it does seem like, well, obviously they're not because that, that's the route they went. But yeah. I almost wonder if it was a little bit of a um, tip of the hat to uh, Polly Styrene of X-ray Specs because I know she had a lot of mental problems. Sure. As she, she did, yeah, yeah. Now, Mike, you watched that Polly Styrene doc, didn't you? You did an episode on that, I think. Yeah, I, I spoke with her daughter who. Uh, also directed and starred in that. Yeah, very good. I have to recommend that. I thought it was really nice. And one of those, who is this person? Why is she important? Well, she's mm-hmm. important for a lot of reasons. And yeah, talk about just a force of nature. That film, I think they showed here at Melbourne Film Festival this year online. But anyone who wants to see that, that's uh, also on the Dock and Roll channel. On there, yeah, I was just going to mention that. It's on their uh, film channel, isn't it? So it's definitely worth a look, yeah. <laughs> Final thoughts? I don't know that we've gone back as much about the music itself. I'm glad to have finally seen this movie. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to finally watch this, and I hope that this wasn't one of those where you guys are just like, oh shit, why did we have I was kind of approaching it a little bit like that before I watched it, but I normally approach most things like that. But it's a good, enjoyable film. It's definitely uh, an interesting timepiece, period piece, I should say. It's amazing to think that 1980 is, is now a period piece, but it is, isn't it? Mm. It's 40-odd years ago now. And I guess some, a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things haven't as well. So that's kind of interesting. But uh, it's definitely worth a look. And it is on YouTube for all your listeners out there. Uh, one other film which I'll sort of compare it to and it's not set in Thatcher's England but I reckon it is no coincidence to my mind that it came out at the start of Thatcher's reign is Quadrophenia which Phil Daniels is in that as well as Jimmy the Mod and once again uh, another film about a generation that are trying to break free of their parents rule Jimmy the Mod in Quadrophenia doesn't want to sort of have a job in an office and Danny in uh, this film, he's um, just trying to make ends meet by rigging the charts, and he sees it all as all as pointless. You know, Jimmy the model lives for the weekend. He's not a great character, really, when it comes down to it. You know, he's, he's pretty self-centered and all that. But I think that because of the the restlessness, the fights that go on between the mods and the rockers in Quadrophenia, and with the National Front and the anti-fascists in breaking glass i think that for those reasons that makes those two really good companion pieces. and i'm pretty sure that phil daniels went straight from making quadrophenia to making breaking glass i think quite apt The 
that's our recommendation, Breaking Glass, 1980. It's on YouTube, and the good news is it does have the original British release, not the American cut. Thank you so much, Mike, for picking that. What is new in the world of the projection booth? I'll just plugging along, you know, uh, we've got Noir Vember coming up here, and I think I'm a little lax on the Noir uh, definition, let's say, uh, covering like uh, the lady from Shanghai, I think is the closest we get to actual pure Noir, and the rest of it is more like neo-noir or just stuff that didn't fit in other places and then december's back to a grab bag of stuff and then already have uh, 2022 planned out and i'm excited to have you back on the show yay so we'll be doing a clockwork orange which I, I gotta say i put it to the see here facebook group i said does clockwork orange qualify as a music related film and I was overwhelmed by the lack of responses to that one. So, um, <laughs> in our Facebook group, surely not. No, it's it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, anyway. So I'm glad that you picked Clockwork Orange for uh, the booth. And I thought, right, okay, here's my excuse. I can finally do it on your show. And yes, but you have uh, you do have all of 2022 planned out. You are, as your wife says, the most well organized man in the podcast world. I've got great time management skills. I don't know how you do it. Organized insofar as the podcast goes. The rest of the house, uh, yeah, not so much. <laughs> and also for the listeners out there, but you know, if you only did the projection booth, you're still a figure of awe. But it's not all that you do. You are starting up a new podcast venture uh, in 2022, and that's not also in Canada. You've got your Twilight Zone. One and your Barney Miller podcast, but I'm very excited about. Tell the audience about your 2022 new podcast venture. Well, in order to get Chris Stashu to watch Columbo, we're going to be talking about Columbo in a new show called The Shabby Detective, which I think uh, I've already got the URL shabbydetective.com set up. Fantastic. So let me just ask you one more question about that. <laughs> Uh, see what I did there. Um, Very yeah. nice. Nice. Yeah. I'm sure you're going to have to shoehorn that in at least seven or eight times per episode, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> just one more thing. Uh, just one yeah. More. And this is like the fourth time, at least, maybe fifth, that somebody has started a Columbo podcast. So now it's going to be a matter of trying to differentiate ourselves from the others. So it's the plan to work through all the Columbo episodes. Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Not oh, only man. the Columbo episodes, but we're also, I'm thinking that looking at other stuff that Falk was up to at the same time, you know, in order right. to say like, yeah, yeah, let's take a look at the in-laws and Mickey and Nikki and some of these things as we go along. I mean, we're already the, the first episode, the first official episode, because I have an interview I just did with a gentleman who wrote a great book about Columbo. I think that's going to be the first episode. And then the one, the proper one will be a discussion of crime and punishment because the character, the police character in there is, is very much what informed Lincoln Levinson of the Columbo character. So I want to mm -hmm. kind of start off with that. And then uh, finally, through the television archives, the original version of Columbo played by Burt Freed is now available. So we're going to talk about that oh, and right. compare that to uh, what was a prescription murder, the first pilot, because it's basically the exact same story just portrayed by two different people. And then it's not even like, 
Peter Falk's in there, but he's not Columbo yet. He's not quite the disheveled mess that we know of. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a nice transitory step to him being the full-blown Columbo. So has this been released on DVD or is this streaming somewhere? It streamed uh, through, I think it through, it wasn't the Paley Center, but yeah, it's available out on Vimeo. So if you do a search for, mm-hmm. oh, Chevy Chase Theater, I think it was, and it wasn't called Prescription Murder. I can't remember what it was called right off the top of my head, but yeah, it is out there. Thank goodness. And yeah, I'll definitely be linking to it because I wasn't even aware that this happened to stream. And it was almost one of those, thank goodness for the pandemic, because I don't think it would have happened otherwise. No, looking forward to having an excuse to going back and watching those old Columbo episodes in general. I mean, I, I think maybe we should have a, um, a shabby detective see here crossover because I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there's an episode where John Casavetti's, I think it's John Casavetti's, is oh, yeah. is a concert pianist and uh, yes, com- yeah, commit in black and commits a murder. I think we can have a crossover when you're ready for that one. That sounds great. Mm. Oh my god, I love Peter Falk. I love. I'd be up for that. Oh, yeah, fantastic. the episode uh, that I was trying to think of was called Chevy Chevy. Sorry, so it wasn't Chevy Chase, but Chevy Mystery Show, and it was Enough Rope as the episode name. Looking forward to that immensely. All right, coming up on next month's see here our beloved tim will be back he'll be married i can't remember how much i mentioned about this at the beginning of the show tim and his fiance maria uh, are getting married this week so he had other things on his mind Pfft, slack but what he has done is he has booked our interview for uh, next month we have a new documentary it's just come out this year about the band guar called this is guar so we're going to be speaking to the director of the film scott barber so immensely looking forward to that so we have a good conversation about guar and about shock rock and rock theatre and all that sort of thing. Maybe even some mock rock. So, uh, yeah, Scott Barber interview. Tim will be back. And uh, this is quite as a documentary. So looking forward to that. Uh, all the usual sorts of things. Join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. Email us at see here podcast at gmail.com. Uh, oh, uh, Instagram as well. Sorry. <laughs> you left a gap for me there. I, I did. Well, I, I did. At See Here Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram. And people who want to check out the projection booth, how do they track you down, Mike? You can also find me at projectionboothpodcast.com. With that, look after each other. Don't kick anyone up the ass. We didn't actually speak about that song. Look after each other. Be nice to each other. And watch a whole lot of music-related movies while you can. We'll speak to you again next month. All the best. Cheers. Yay. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 